a wonderful opportunity to preach at, uh, in Liberia at the United Liberian Inland Churches uh, Denominational Church Conference. Uh, I was invited by Carney Duna and what uh, ministry we support here at Village Bible Church called Eula Calf. And I wanted to thank uh, for those who uh, enabled me to go, if they could hold down the fort while I was gone. Thank you for what you've done and enabling me to go on such a wonderful trip. And it was interesting while I was there. Um, I'd only been to Africa one other time in Egypt. I'd not been to West Africa before. And so it was uh, a new journey for me to go and to be able to share and learn. Uh, I go, when I go to a foreign country, I try to go as a servant and as a student uh, to know what I can learn and how I can apply that to my life and help share the, what the, the lessons that others have been taught and how we can apply it in our own church and learn from one another. And, and while I was there, it was, it was uh, fascinating and sorrowful to see many of the things that had happened to this country. Uh, for many that don't know, they've gone through two civil wars in the last 30 years. Um, so awful and horrendous that almost one million people have been killed. This is not a very big country by any stretch of the imagination. But one million people have been killed. I mean, rape, torture, murder, you name it, it's gone on. Uh, their entire infrastructure was destroyed. Um, and then not only were they dealing with the loss of so many family members and friends and the injustices perpetrated against them, they had to deal with the outbreak of Ebola in 2014 and 2016, and it spread on enabling almost 5,000 casualties like that uh, with, with, with the, with, you know, to face that. And I was, as I was there, I got to interact and learn more about the culture and the people, and I got to speak to uh, the president of the Christian college that is affiliated with this denomination. And I was asking him his, his studies and how he got to where he was. And we started talking about the country itself and the church. And I was asking him about one of the things that broke his heart and what he was dealing with. And he said, what I can't understand is how this denomination, this church, which is one of the most conservative in all of Liberia, could supply 60% of the soldiers in the Civil War that would perpetrate and commit such atrocities that it's hard to even begin to fathom. How could a, a church that was teaching the Word of God have these soldiers do such evil to so, so many other people? And so I was invited there to speak on some of the seven deadly sins, uh, the series that we went through here. And as I, I preached, I just really tried to understand the mind and let God do his work. And I preached on pride for the first message. When I got done, the president of the denomination came up and he gave an altar call, which is something that they normally don't do at this church. Next thing I know, the altar is flooded with people that are crying, laying on their faces, uh, crying out all over to the point where you couldn't even walk in the aisles. It was just a movement of, the, of God, of the Holy Spirit. And what I noticed and, and why I kept preaching, and, and I, I had an insight from the different leaders that many of the Liberians, and I think this is true for many Americans, is that their faith hasn't, per, hasn't gone down deep into who they are. That's why they could commit such evil. And that they were great with cheering and praising God and talking about the cross. But when it came into the depths of who they are, the gospel had not yet penetrated into the depth of their heart. And here's what I mean by that. When we look and talk about the Christian life, we have a tendency to look at um, salvation in three ways. Actually, biblically, it's three, uh, like three parts of a rope, if you will. Three cords together. And we have justification, the moment that we are declared righteous in the sight of God. There's our sanctification, and that has two aspects. We're positionally holy, and then are made are progressively holy in the sight of God. And then glorification, when we enter into the very presence of God. Maybe we could look at it this way. Justification, when you're freed from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is where you're learning how to be free from the power of sin. 
and glorifications when you are freed from the very presence of sin. Now, all three of those are involved in our salvation. But for many of us in the church, we only live at this level with the justification. And we don't see how the gospel is to penetrate down deep into every aspect and fiber of our being. Whether it's finances, which we just talked about. Whether it's our marital relationships. Whether it's how we live, how we work, what we do. The gospel has to penetrate every aspect of who we are. So in that culture, and and again, I'm generalizing it. I'm sure it's not that way across the board. But I saw that there was a faith where people could praise God and shout. But yet, when it came down to it, the gospel wasn't penetrating and going into their homes, into their everyday lives, and how they responded to atrocity and evil around them. Now, I say this as one who didn't face those hostilities. And I know full well that even though what we're teaching here, when it comes down to it and someone's got an AK-47 in your face, your reaction is going to be different. But I look at James as one who understood persecution. James, as we've learned, was the Lord's brother, and he is now writing to the church that is dispersed after the persecution that had begun in Jerusalem, and he's encouraging these fearful and sometimes angry brothers And they're angry at the injustices that they've gone through. They're angry that many of them had lost their careers, lost their businesses, lost their jobs. Some had lost their family. Some had lost a spouse or a child. And he's writing to them on how they are to live. This is how you are to live. You have to have the gospel penetrate down deep into the very fabric and heart of your soul to show the reality of who God is. So today, we're going to explore this wonderful, amazing, and and sometimes bewildering passage to truly see how God wants us to apply this in our lives. Because the gospel has to go beyond Sunday morning. It has to go into your Monday morning work week. It has to go into how you deal when your paycheck comes. It has to go into how you interact with your spouse or your neighbor or your classmate. It has to penetrate every single part of who we are. So let's take a moment to ask God to send forth His Holy Spirit to blow open a hole in our hearts and our minds that we might truly be able to not only comprehend and understand, but apply the truths that He has laid out within His Word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you now admitting our sin. Lord, so often we have not let your gospel penetrate the depth of our being. So often we've lived at the surface level. So often we've given ourselves over to sin. So often we've just heard the word and gone forth and not obeyed the teaching that you've laid out before us. Lord, please, let us be truly transformed by the, from the inside out as we sang today. We give you our hearts, we give you our souls, and we ask that you, by the power of your Spirit, speak to who we are. Show us who you are, but show us who we are and how we are to live in such a way that your name receives glory, that we can joyously reflect back to you what you mean to us. So direct us, empower us, and use us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's jump right in to our text. 
James chapter 1. Let's start in verse 19. So follow along with me if you have a Bible. If you don't or are not familiar with the Bible, just listen in the best that you can. Starting verse 19, James starts off, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. He starts off, he's addressing the, the brothers, those who are Christians who have truly know who Jesus is. And he says, know this. He's, he's starting off with a command, an imperative. This is what I want you to do because you are going to be tempted to be angry at what you've gone through. And I want you to understand that the gospel has to penetrate down deep into who you are. And we need to understand that if our faith is to get down deep into who we really are, God desires that we learn how to react righteously to life's difficulties. React righteously. How do we react when we face hostility, when we face frustration, when we face pain, when we face uh, violence in our lives? How do we respond to that? And James starts off, and he's very, very clear. He says we need to learn how to react righteously. And he says, first of all, you need to be quick to hear. Now, the word quick in Greek is very, it, it means exactly what it says it is in English. Prompt, unhindered, without delay. In other words, God requires us to listen carefully. As we've noted before, God has given us two ears and one mouth, which means he wants us to listen twice as much as we speak. But for many of us, we have a hard time running off our mouth. We love to speak. We love communicating, sharing our ideas, sharing our lives, sharing about ourselves. We like to air our opinions and what we think, what we're feeling. We're so consumed with speaking and getting our thoughts out there, we have lost the art of listening. The Bible teaches us a great deal about listening in the book of Proverbs. For example, Proverbs chapter 17, verse 28. Even fools are thought wise when they keep silent. With their mouths shut, they seem intelligent. Saying that even then, don't speak, listen. Listen. The Bible talks about this again in, in, in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 13. Spouting off before listening to the facts is both shameful and foolish. Why? Because we have a tendency to react. We want to justify ourselves. We want to get our word in there to prove that we are right. Or we want to win an argument. Sometimes we have to stop and hear all of the facts first before we react. That's why Proverbs chapter 18 verse 17 says this. The first to speak in court sounds right until the cross-examination begins. You ever had a situation where someone comes forward and tells you their problem or issue that they have with someone else and you readily agree and you see that there's an injustice that's gone on and you react to that other person without ever hearing their side? And when you stop and listen to their side, you find out that this person omitted some things from you, glossed over some things, skipped over it, and you go, wait a minute, and now you look like a fool because you jumped on them and you didn't hear all the facts. This verse, this verse is really saying this. There are two sides to every story, and you need to listen first before you react. He's saying we need to listen and understand that listening itself is an art that we need and a discipline that we need to practice. And here's a good way. When you're interacting with people, and this is something that I, I have a tendency to uh, do, when people talk to you, do you do this? Yeah, okay. Do this. Give them attention. Give them respect. We all have a tendency to do this. I mean, I, getting on the plane, I was flying on several planes on the way back, and every single person on the plane was doing this. Every single one. I was like, hello. 
We're so consumed. We've forgotten how to listen. And we're so busy sharing our opinions on social media, we don't listen to anybody else. I'm starting to hate social media. I'm hating, I hate all the politics. I hate all the stuff that people are throwing out there. It's a wonderful tool. But my goodness, people are just throwing out their gunslinger and whatever point they want to throw out at you and their article and their, their author and then whenever you to read it, and it just stirs more people up. I mean, these truths that we're talking about don't just apply to our daily physical lives, but also to our online lives as well. We need to learn to listen carefully. That's not all. We also need to learn how to be, notice what he says. We are to be slow to speak. Slow to speak. Think think things over before we say them. How many of us have said something that was ill-timed or not thought through? Which is why we need to heed Proverbs chapter 15, verse 28. The heart of the godly thinks carefully before speaking. How often I wish I would have memorized this verse. Or years ago, I wish I would have memorized this verse quicker. Too quick to speak, too quick to show off knowledge, too quick to air my own opinion. And, I, and I'd say something and I'd hurt the people around me. We need to be careful. To, we need to learn how to speak thoughtfully. That's what James is commanding us to do. We're to listen carefully, but also speak thoughtfully. Understand that our words carry a great deal of weight and have the power to hurt or help someone. We need to think about the appropriate words to say. And this, by the way, as I said before, is true for us online as well. Think before you post. I'm tired of people just throwing up an article after article on this issue and that without discussion or interaction with the author. It's an article that already agrees with what they believe and Not that sharing what you believe is wrong, but oftentimes it's not for dialogue, but for forced acceptance. And after we listen carefully, speak thoughtfully, we need to make sure that we are slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, we just talked about anger uh, this past summer. Anger is a God-given emotion. And it's a reaction to a perceived injustice. And in its pure form, it is right. Anger is good. God himself gets angry. We are made in his image. He has enabled us to get angry so we might make changes for good. Uh, Like I mentioned before, uh, I was in Liberia and I I saw this civil, I had heard about the Civil War. And what was amazing to me was the women of Liberia. Um, Because they got so tired of the Civil War. Tired of it. And so this is what they said. This is true. You can look it up online. But they said, we're not going to cook. We're not going to clean. We're not going to make you any meals. And we're not going to sleep with you until this war is over. And that's exactly what they did. And it ended the war really fast. (laughs) I mean, true story. I'm not joking around. When I heard it, I couldn't help but laughing out loud. They had, in essence, it's even called. You can look it up online. One woman even won a Nobel Prize for helping illustrate and orchestrate a sex strike in Liberia. But see, they were angry. They were angry. That not excuse, by the way. Let me. That goes on. That that was for Liberia. <laughs> Let's put that out there right now. Okay. But they saw an injustice, evil going on, and they said that caused them to be angry and to want change. See, that's what anger is supposed to do. Now, see, we see that's a good anger. But see, and God himself has a definitive anger. His anger is perfect. And he sees injustices the way they really are. He knows all the facts. But for us, we have a distorted anger. And our anger can some, sometimes act 
great and sometimes can act very poor, depending on the situation. In my, in my car, I have a, uh, a short. One of my speakers has a short in it. And that when I take a certain turn, my speaker goes, Wah! just like that. With the stereo not being on, off, doesn't matter. Wah! It's so annoying. And it makes you paranoid while you're driving. But see, that's how our anger is. Sometimes it works great the way it's supposed to. And sometimes it just comes off and goes, Wah! So annoying. If anybody knows how to fix car stereo speakers, talk to me after the service. But see, that's how our anger is. That's exactly how our anger is. Our anger is distorted. And that's why he's saying here, man's anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It doesn't produce that because our anger is often distorted. Our anger wants to orchestrate change, but it's a distorted anger. And rather than bringing about the righteousness of God, it's just our own will pushing forth and hurting people around us and doing things that cause us more trouble later. So we have to understand how to reply shrewdly to the situations in which we find ourselves. It's about our reactions, So we have to learn how to reply shrewdly. Now, shrewdly is not a word that we use often anymore, but it means showing sharp powers of discernment, being able to read the situation and know how to react. The book of Proverbs talks about this in Proverbs chapter 16. I want to say verse 14, but don't quote me off the top of my head. But it's a a verse that always mystified me because it says this, answer, do not answer, excuse me, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be a fool yourself. And then the second part says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So it seems contradictory. One, it says, don't answer the fool according to his folly. And the other one says, answer a fool according to his folly. Which is it? The point is, it's about situations. Certain situations, we have to learn to shut the person down. But there are other times where it is better that we be quiet and restrain ourselves. Jesus orchestrates that per- perfectly. When they're ask me, asking him um, with Pilate, are you the son of God? He's silent. But there's other times where he very much speaks and shows people the heart of who they are. So we have to understand that. We have to learn to reply shrewdly. Don't get angry. Stop, count to a thousand, do whatever you need to do. But stop and think carefully about your reaction before you react. As we learn in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11, sensible people control their temper. They earn respect by overlooking wrongs. See, there are certain times where we don't need to react. We just need to overlook that wrong and go on. But yet there's other times where we need to speak up. and We need to ask God for discernment and wisdom on how we are to proceed. Now, it's this next section in verse 21 that is, uh, we need to examine pretty intently. Look at verse 21. Therefore... Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Now notice the word therefore. As it has often been said, when you see therefore in Scripture, you have to ask yourself the question, what's it there for? And so what he's saying there, he says therefore, it's hearkening back to verse 20. It's a response to the anger that is not bringing about the righteousness of God. He says, in lieu of God's righteousness and how God has worked within you, you are to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. In other words, James wants us to reconsider thoughtfully how we live. 
That's his next thing. Therefore, brothers, put away. I want you to think about this as the righteousness of God has been poured out in your life. And anger doesn't bring that about. But yet, this righteousness of God is for you. How do you respond to that? We have to reconsider thoughtfully how we live. The gospel has to penetrate deep down into who we are. And we need to look at our lives and see if our lives are lived in such a way to produce God's righteousness. Do our lives truly show that we are God's children? It's not about what we say, but what we do. And we need to reconsider how we live. Now, the first thing that we're required to do is put away our sin. In the NIV, it is to take off. It is the imagery of taking off one's clothes, especially poor and dirty clothes. Now, when I was in uh, Liberia, uh, it was about 95 degrees, and there were 500 people in one room and no air conditioning. And I already sweat in the middle of a snowstorm. So I'm preaching for an hour and a half a shot, and I preach three times. After my first sermon, I not only sweat through my undershirt, but my upper shirt and through my pants. It was pretty gross. Some of you now are just like, oh, that's the picture. To take off. That's what he's saying here. Take off your filthiness. Take it off. It's gross. That's what it's like. It's like these sweaty, dirty clothes that you have that is clinging to you that we're to take off. We're to take it away. We need to fight it in our lives. James uses the word rampant wickedness. He uses a word that shows how bad and offensive we really are. When it's used with the word all filthiness, it carries the idea of abundant or surplus of evil. See, James is saying that he wants us to fight sin, all forms of it that are in our lives. And what he's saying here is that James requires us to deal with sin seriously. When I don't, we don't think about sin as being that bad. You know, <clears throat> traveling, one of the things that I've, I, uh, I've become paranoid about is water. Anyone that's ever traveled knows that you've got to be careful drinking the water, right? You've got to be very careful in what you drink. And so when I, before I went to India, before I've been to Liberia, people always tell me, don't drink the water, don't eat any food that you can get from a stand, and don't eat any fruit or uh, vegetable that you can't peel. That's what people tell me. Because if you don't, you're going to get extremely sick. And in India, I saw this orchestrated once where we were at uh, our host place, and someone who is an American uh, or a Westerner grabbed a, a cup and put it under the faucet, and everybody was around like, no, 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 that's not drinking water. <laughs> you don't, don't drink that. Why? Because you'll get sick. And so you're paranoid about it. You're, you're very careful of the water that you drink and what you take with you. And, and so we have to be careful of sin that way. Because you know why? Because sin destroys us. Sin makes us sick. We need to fight it. You need to be careful about it. See, that's why I'm careful of what I drink when I go to someplace else because I don't want to take in something that I know could harm me and kill me. But see, that's sin. Sin, we don't guard that way. We're more flippant about it, not realizing it might taste good at the moment, but it's going to come back to bite you in the end. That's what it's going to do. And so we have to understand that. We have to deal with our sin seriously. Now notice the next part of the verse, after we put away sin... We are then to receive with meekness the implanted word. Now, the word meekness means gentle strength. It's the opposite of anger, obviously. He doesn't want us to get angry. Instead, he wants us to refocus. He wants us to adjust our attitude accordingly and receive with meekness, to respond with gentle strength, to keep it under control, and to respond with what God has done in our lives. See, we have to realize that we've been purchased with a price and that we are 
to, as Paul said to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 through 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, you're to receive with meekness this implanted word that he has placed within us. And receive it with meekness. We need to readjust our attitude. It's a loving response to the grace of God that is at work within our lives. That we didn't work our way to God. That we are not great in the sight of God. That we need to humble ourselves and receive this wonderful gift that he's enabled us to have. So we need to receive it. With meekness. In other words, we have to adjust our attitude, making sure that we're not angry, but being gentle, this power under control. Now notice the next part that is given fits to many scholars in verse 21. And receive with meekness the implanted word. What is the implanted word? Now after setting this, I believe that it is the Holy Spirit bringing about the teaching of Christ that comes with salvation. It is cooperating with the word that we understand how our souls are saved. As one scholar said, James wants us to focus on adopting a new code of behavior, the influence of God's word in producing that new kind of behavior. He highlights the fact that the implanted word is divinely empowered to save your souls. See, he's admiring the power of the word. And part of reconsidering how we live is marveling at the power of God's word and how it looks into our soul and shows us who we really are and how we are to live. In fact, we should admire the word's perspicacity. This is a new word for you. Okay, this is a new word for all of us. It's not one that I like to throw down. You don't hear it in any rap songs that I know of. But admire the word's perspicacity, and it comes, uh, from, and it, it's actually from another doctrine of Scripture called the perspicuity of Scripture. The perspicuity of Scripture is that means, uh, it's the doctrine of Scripture by which we understand that it is clarified or obvious enough to speak to us about our salvation and how we are to live. That's a perspicuity of Scripture. Now, perspicacity means that the Word of God speaks to the essence of who we are. It is a keen insight into our souls. If you want a short definition, that's it. Perspicacity is a keen insight into our souls and shows we how, to, how we are to live, which is why James here says it's able to save your souls. In other words, he's saying that if we're looking at those three strands of our salvation, it's showing us sanctification, how we are to live and persevere as followers of of Christ and apply the word of God into our daily lives. See, this is why we have a wrong understanding of, of salvation. We're always focusing on justification and don't see it fully in its, in its full uh, holistic form. And we've just made it that pray the prayer and that's it. That's not what the scripture talks about. There's a reason why in the book of Acts that Christianity was called the way. Because it was the idea of living and orchestrating one's life in accordance to what Christ had done on the cross and living that resurrection life that Christ gave unto us that was his by the power of the Spirit. So we're in deep waters. And we have to admire the word's perspicacity in that the Bible speaks to the entirety of our human condition in every way, shape, and form. There is not one person that the Bible doesn't talk about. But it talks to the entirety of who we are. And we need to understanding that, that this word is able to save our souls. In other words, it's directing us to glorification. It's keeping us on that journey and how we can deal with sin in our lives and migrate and navigate the difficulties of life in such a way that we, are, we enter into God's presence. It's the perseverance of the saints that's played out on the pages of James. 
some deep truth. So we have to admire the words perspicacity. But that's not all. I mean, or actually, I'm going to expand a little bit. This is the truth in John 14, chapter 26, when Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. See, it's, it's the implanted word, is the idea is the Holy Spirit is bringing alive everything that Jesus taught us. And we can learn to live the way that he wants us to live. That's what it's talking about. But let's go back to our text in verse 22. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forget what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer, hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now, it's interesting there that the Greek does not imply a feminine form, but it's implying a masculine form, in that men look in the mirror and forget what they look like. Women don't forget what they look like when they look in the mirror. Tony Evans put it this way. He said that, talking about a mirror, he said there are five mirrors in a woman's life. And I've shared this before, but there are five mirrors in a woman's life. There's the bathroom mirror that shows what, what, what went wrong in the night. And then there's the vanity mirror that's appropriately named. And then there's the full body mirror to make sure everything's right in place before she goes out. And then she has the visor mirror in the car to show what went wrong between the house and the car. And then there's the compact mirror that she can make sure everything's in place as she goes through the day. Now, if there's any man here that's carrying a compact mirror, we got issue. <laughs> okay? But he's saying here that it's, it, it's a man that looks in the mirror and he forgets what he looks like. He goes away. He's saying that's what it's like. When we go to the Word of God, we hear it and we don't apply it. That's bad. He says we need to understand and respond in obedience to what God has done. See, James is saying we can hear the word of God and think we are good because we heard a message or because we came to church. But the fact is, if we don't do anything with it, then it means absolutely nothing. Hearing is good, but hearing has to be coupled with obedience. What James is telling us is that if our faith is to get down deep into who we are, then it requires for us to respond obediently. Now, I was reading this fascinating book this uh, past week while I was traveling, and it's called um, T4T, A Re-Revolution of Discipleship. And it's called Training for Trainers, and it's in, uh, a, a kind of a manual of sorts on uh, church planning um, and how it's happened in Asia, and one man's journey into church planning. And, and it's a phenomenal approach, and it's phenomenal what God is doing with this. So phenomenal, in fact, this man, when he went into the field to plant churches, he had a goal of planting two or 300 churches in his lifetime, which is a pretty lofty goal. And many of his supervisors are thought, well, he'll never meet that goal. He calls them, um, I think, within nine months, and he says, well, I've reached my goal. What next? And they said, wait a minute. Wait, wait, what? He says, I've reached my goal. I've planted that many churches already. And they were real legitimate churches. They went back to examine them. And he, he said, our approach, the reason that God is using that and God is doing that is because I changed, uh, I actually looked at the scripture to see what God had said and how we are to look at spiritual maturity and how to use different people. See, in the West, we have substituted obedience for knowledge. He, he goes on to say this. He says, in knowledge-based discipleship, which is many Western churches, Sunday school classes, evening classes, we have a lot of classes. We like to class people to death at times. We give all this knowledge out. 
We delay how quickly a new believer can serve or lead based on how much he or she knows. Knowledge-based maturity follows the progression of believe, mature, serve. In this knowledge-based model, when people come to faith, they're put through discipleship classes and generally not entrusted with much responsibility. Their basic maturation process often extends over years. And many churches and ministries don't let them take responsibility until they are, quote, matured to a certain point, whatever that church believes it is. But Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 16, teaches a radically different order. In verse 11, leaders are given to the church. In verse 12, they equip God's people to know Christ, serve, etc. In verse 12, God's people serve or do the work of the ministry. And in verse 12 and 13, the result is that they and the body mature through this process. So the biblical progression of maturity is not believe, mature, serve, but rather believe, serve, mature. See, in the New Testament, believers matured by serving. Instead of holding new believers back from serving and leading until they mature, we help them mature by serving in appropriate ways and eventually leading us as they prove faithful. It is obedience-based discipleship. That's radical. That changes everything. So let me ask you this question. This is one that I'm asking myself. How obedient are you being to what God has revealed to you? What steps are you failing to take in obedience right now? What are you afraid of? When you become a Christian, God shows you some things about himself, and then he shows you things about yourself. There are sins that need to be confessed and repented of, restitution that needs to be made, and greater steps of faith that need to be taken. If we fail to be obedient, God won't let us progress in our joy and discipleship. We can't skip steps of faith. God will make it so that we have to go back and do that step before we can really move on. I see this played out in the story of the rich young ruler. Many of you are familiar with that, that parable that Jesus, or, I mean the story that Jesus tells or it's told about him is his interaction with this rich young ruler. He's what any church pastor would want. The guy comes up, bows down and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a guy that's pretty loaded, got money, could be a great tither, help expand the church, do all of these wonderful things. And Jesus says, you know the commandments? And he begins to quote a few of them. And the, the young man assures him, these I've done since I was a youth. Jesus looks at him and loves him and says, this is what you lack. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and then come and follow me. It says that he went away quite sorrowful because he had many possessions. See, his condition of obedience was giving up the the thing that actually had tentacles grabbing his heart. That was his real Lord, was his stuff and all the things that came with it. The power, the security, the prestige. But see, God wants the essence of who you are. And he's going to call you to give up that one thing, that one thing that keeps you from really trusting in him. Think about it. Abraham was tasked with giving or commanded to give up the most precious thing he had to offer, which was his son. He had to sacrifice Isaac to take him up to that mountain and to imagine the thoughts that were going through his head. I mean, this is something that God condemned was child sacrifice, and yet here it is. And yet he's obeying what God has said. And it says that in the text that he pulls out the knife and gets ready to pull it down, and God stops him because God sees and knows that he's willing to give everything to him. He's willing to obey to the uttermost degree. 
What is God calling you to obey in? What are you holding back from him? What are you not willing to give up or give over? And it's different for each one of us. God knows, and he's calling that to your heart. He knows what it is in your heart that's keeping you from following him completely. But he's saying, trust in me. I love you more than anyone else ever would. And what you give up is so far insignificant to what you get back. Because that is me. What are you willing to give up? What is God calling you? How is he calling you to obey him? Now, responding obediently then requires us to really doing a thorough examination of ourselves. Notice the text as we read in verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law. It's, the, again, almost like a mirror. The law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. He also goes back in verse 24, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. In other words, we can't forget what we look like. We have to go in and stare at the word of God and let the word of God stare back at us and remove and show us the sin that he wants to take out in our lives. In other words, we have to examine ourselves thoroughly. We are to really respond obediently. We have to examine ourselves thoroughly. Now, before I went to Liberia, I bought one of these. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these. It's called a SteriPen. Um, it's a water purifier. Now, what's fascinating about this little thing is that if you open up your water and you stick it in there and you press the button, that within like 90 seconds, it's going to kill all the bacteria that you have in your water, making it safe for you to drink. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Now, what I see that as is when we examine ourselves thoroughly, we're saying to God, take your word and place it into the dark parts of our life to purify us. Show us and eliminate the sin. This is where Jesus said, unless you abide in me and my words abide in you. See, this is what it's talking about. This is the, the, the Psalm 119. I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. I'm, I'm asking the word of God, God, I'm asking you to cleanse me. I'm asking you to remove that, that bacteria of sin in my life. And Lord, please show me how you want me to live. Not just the one who hears the word of God. Lord, I want you to get down deep into who I am. I want you to cleanse me from the inside. I want you to remove those offensive ways within me that I might be able to walk closer with you and experience your joy, help you expand your kingdom by taking care of the the widow, the orphan, those who are the foreigners, by doing the difficult things. Lord, show me who I'm to be. Let your word probe me as I stare within that perfect law, the law of liberty. And I love that picture, the law of liberty. It's not a law that's burdensome. It's a law of freedom. It's a law that where we stare at, we find freedom. It's not a burden upon our lives by obeying it. It's by obeying it, I'm released from the shackles of the power of sin in my life. That I can live a a life of full joy and truly experience who God made me to be and what he made me to do. You can say amen. It's okay to say amen. But it's to examine ourselves thoroughly And it also means applying his word vigorously. This is something that you, when you're going into a place where you know there's sin in your life, I mean, dirty water, you want to put this all the time. This thing, this little thing here gets 8,000 liters of water that it can cleanse. It's a lot. Pretty amazing, isn't it? See, the word of God is infinitely more than that. We're to apply the word of God vigorously. Notice what it says within our text. 
but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres. That's the point of the passage, persevering. It's perseverance of the saints that I keep fighting on, that I keep doing what God wants me to do. That means I'm applying his word vigorously to my life. I'm making the word of God such a part of me that it directs my thoughts. It pops into my mind and it directs my actions. We become what we behold. Now lastly, we see that the person who does this will be blessed in his doing. Blessed in his doing. Happy. Joyous. In other words... We are to celebrate God's work joyously in our lives. See, the person who does what God wants will be blessed in what they do. There will be joy. And the joy of the Lord, according to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, verse 15, is our strength. Maybe verse 10. But the joy of the Lord is our strength. Be blessed by applying the word of God We'll be blessed in that we'll have a cleansed conscience. We won't experience shame and we'll have a guilt-free conscience. And that cannot be overlooked. Too many of us are feeling perpetually guilty day in and day out. We feel shameful and powerless. But God is telling us that if we were to do what he has laid out for us in his word, we'll be blessed. As I mentioned before, it was great to see the work that God is doing in Liberia. But I believe that God's also doing a work in our church in our community as well. When I preached for the first time there, God did a work that I'd never seen before. Altars were flooded with people, so much so you couldn't walk to the front or the aisles. People were bowing at their chairs, confessing their sins. After another message, I heard a woman start speaking up, and I thought she was angry at what I said. I didn't know what to do. I'm looking at my translator and, and the host, and he goes, she's actually confessing her sins. And she confessed her sins, and another one, and another one, and another one. And all these people started confessing their sins at one time. Something that that church doesn't normally do. It's just a a work of God. See, they want to see the gospel go deep into their lives. Do we want to see the gospel go deep into our lives? Do we want to see God do a work in us and through us that only he can do? Has God's gospel penetrated your life? Don't wait. Ask him to change you and offer up yourself to him. And he will get down deep into who you are for his glory and transform you for your joy as well. Let's pray. Lord, our God, there's so many things that we heard today. And Lord, help us not just to hear it, but truly to go forth to apply it. Help us to learn how to react righteously. Help us to truly change our life to, to in such a way that it will bring your name great glory. Help us to respond obediently to what you're showing us day in and day out. And Lord, please grow us as believers. Give us a burden for the lost. Give us a burden to see your kingdom made known and expanded, not only throughout our community, but through all over the world. Lord, may we not rest, but may we, may we echo the prayer or the words of your servant who wanted to see every square inch of the world under your sovereignty. So, Lord, please give us a a holy desire, a holy inclination to follow you, to do your word, to apply these truths to our lives. And let your gospel get down deep into the, the heart of who we are. Not just for our own benefit, that we might find freedom and joy, but so that your name 
might resonate from our lives, that we truly might be the fragrance of Christ to those who are perishing, to some the smell of life, to others the smell of death. May we truly be your people, embracing and taking up our cross and living as those who are crucified to this world, who have been crucified with Christ and no longer living, but it is Christ who lives through us. So glorify your name in our lives, direct us as a church, and help us to expand your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.